Well, today, I would love for us to continue in part two of the standalone, <laughs> standing alone on two feet, two parts, uh, where I, I had it on my heart to talk to you about reality checks, reality checks. And last week, we discussed three reality checks. It makes life profitable because it seems like people are running after making life profitable 24-7. And the Bible has a very clear, very direct message to us when it comes to how to make life profitable. And can you remember what that was? Contentment, life, holiness plus content, or godliness plus contentment equals gain, the Bible says. And uh, Christianity has a very unique way of explaining gain in life, or uh, let me say this, uh, how to be content in life. The way to be content in life is not to attempt to bring your your stuff up to the level of your desires, but to bring your desire to the level of the things that you have. Amen? And uh, it's very important for us to be thankful for what we have, and until we become, um, until we deal with our desires, we can never be grateful no matter what we have, no matter who we're with, no matter where we are. It's, uh, it's, it's our heart that is the issue, not the lack of stuff we have, or the uh, the lack of good relationship or lack of relationships or you know the person I'm married to it's not necessarily their problem it's my heart that needs to change amen and then we'll talk we talk, talked about being fruitful and so forth but today uh, I want to go to another reality check that I feel is so important for us to consider you see two the two greatest driving forces the two greatest driving forces in human nature are pain and pleasure. Pain and pleasure. We live to avoid pain. We live to gain pleasure. This is our daily to-do list. If you go down your to-do list, you'll see every single thing you do is in order to gain ultimate pleasure or to avoid pain. We plan our lives around these two issues. That's why people work hard toward a more comfortable and convenient life because of the pleasure that comfort promises to have eventually. That is why people are fearful of breaking the law because they're fearful of having to deal with the consequences that comes with breaking the law. So we live towards those two ends for most part. And so first, I would like us to look deeper into what allows us to experience either pain or pleasure. What allows you to experience pain or pleasure? Now, I want to submit to you that the state of a person's heart determines what they find to be pleasant and what they find to be abhorrent. The heart determines what you find desirable and what you find detestable. The heart determines those things. You see, the person whose heart is dark, the person whose heart is hardened with sin, will find pleasure in doing things that are evil. Isn't that true? Why are people chasing after evil? Because they find pleasure in it. The person whose heart is filled with the light of God, that person there will find pleasure in doing things that is, that are, that is righteous and godly. So the heart is the determining factor here as to what is ultimately pleasing to you. How many of you thought that a certain sin was going to be pleasurable, but then you found out that ultimately it was painful? Yeah? 
You see, the state of your heart determines what brings you joy. The person whose heart is dark, the person whose heart has been hardened with sin, will be tormented, tormented by being part of a prayer meeting <laughs> or a one-hour Bible study. It's just unfathomable. Man, it killed that person to sit through that Bible study. They have no interest in that Bible study. It was absolute torment for them to be part of that Bible study and then to stand up and in a circle and sing a hymn? Oh my, how painful can it be to the person whose heart is hardened toward God while the person whose heart is filled with the light of God just hungers for that moment of deep fellowship over the things of God, the Word of God, the truth of God. Amen? So it's the heart that determines these things that you find detestable and these things that you find pleasurable. What brings one person great pleasure could be the very same thing that brings another person great torment. And the difference is in the state of their heart. In Luke chapter 6.45, Jesus clarifies that your heart is a depository for good and evil. It's a tank. Your heart holds good or evil and whatever comes out of your mouth good or evil and what things that things that come from your life comes out of that tank out of that de depository Luke 6:45 let's read it. it says the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what good things forgiveness kindness consistency godliness Wisdom. Out of his heart come all these good things in life. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure in that depository, in that tank, brings forth what is evil in life, for his mouth speaks that which his heart is full. You don't speak things that didn't filter through your mind, right? So from your heart filters these evil things through your mind out your mouth. Oftentimes, you, you, well, you know what I'm saying, right? So, from your heart, filters through your heart, filters through your thoughts, excuse me, and you eventually just speak of the things. And so, what you hear your mouth say, of course, has already been through your mind, but it came from your heart. So, I'm just basically showing you how the state of your heart and the state of my heart is a total deal breaker in the life that we live. Because much of it is our own making. Many people, because of what they have filled their depository or their tank, heart tank, filled, what they filled their heart with, has caused them to create this nest of thorns. And now they're living in this nest of thorns and they wonder, why is my nest so filled with thorns? They don't realize it all came ultimately from the state of their heart. Because the state of your heart will determine what you love. It'll determine what you hate. It'll determine what you desire. It'll determine what you despise. What you give yourself to. And what you protect yourself from. What your heart is full of determines all of that. 
So today we're going to ask the crucial questions regarding the heart of the believer. And we're going to discover what does the Bible mean when referring to the heart? Or where's your heart? Most people, they think their heart is their emotion, or their emotions equals their heart. My emotions are up, therefore my heart is happy. My emotions are down, therefore my heart is broken. And they measure their heart by their emotions. But we're going to look at what the Bible says when the Bible, you know, points to the heart. Number two, we're going to ask, how to know if I have a, because the conscience is part of the heart. So the second question is, how to know if I have a weak conscience, which the Bible speaks of, a clear conscience, which the Bible speaks of, or a seared conscience, which the Bible speaks of. What is the state of my conscience? How do I know the state of my conscience? Today we will find out. Number three, we're going to ask what are the symptoms of a hardened heart, and we will use Pharaoh as our case study. And then number four, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to guard our heart? Guard our heart. <clears throat> Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. What a great promise. Watch over your heart because from it springs or flows the springs of life. So if your heart is the fountain from which all of life is determined and we are told to watch over it, then we are to start off by finding out where our heart is situated. Because we can't watch over our heart if we don't know which part of who we are to watch over. So number one, where is heart of man located? Now this is a huge conversation, huge subject, and it will take up months to explain. But I think uh, for our context here, what is important is to identify what Thomas Watson wrote he says, the heart is taken diversely in scriptures. In other words, scriptures point to diverse areas within who you are in order to say, this is your heart. Okay, first he says, Proverbs 10.8 says, that refers to your mind as being a part of your heart. Can everybody please say mind? mind. Your thoughts is a part of your core, your heart. Proverbs 10.8. He also shows in 1 John 3.20 that sometimes the Bible refers to the conscience as being part of your heart. Ever did, have you ever done something and then suddenly your heart just smote you? You go like, oh, I can't believe I just did that. Yeah? And then you know you needed to ask God to forgive you. <laughs> you need to turn away from that thing. Well, that's your conscience speaking to you. And your conscience, the Bible says, is a part of your heart. So we have mind. Everybody please say conscience. Conscience. That's the second part of your heart. And then number three, Psalm 119 verse 36 says that your will is a part of your heart. Oh, I have a free will. Well, not if you have a heart of stone. <laughs> How about, all right. So your will is a part of your heart. Your will is a part of your heart. And when God gives you a brand new heart, He gives you a brand new will. God never overrides your will. He just gives you a new one. And then also in 119 verse 36 in Psalms, it says that the, your affections, your affections is part of your heart. Can everybody say will? will. Can everybody say affections? affections. Conscience? And mind. A.W. Pink answers the question, 
by saying this, quote, the heart is the seat of man's thoughts, his affections, and his will. So circling back to Proverbs 24, or 4 verse 23, 4 verse 23, where the Bible says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Here the Bible declares because um, that, because the heart is the birthplace of thoughts. The heart is the birthplace of ideas. The, your heart is the birthplace for your confidence and for your bravery, for your courage. The heart is the seat in the birthplace of your conscience. Your heart is the birthplace of your conviction. And if your heart's a mess, so will be your convictions. And so will be your confidence. And so will be your, con your thoughts. And so will be your ideas. It's all kind of messy. Why? Because the heart is messy. The heart is the birthplace for your drive. The heart is the birthplace for your desire. That's why sometimes if your heart's a mess, you desire all the wrong things. And the heart is the birthplace for your affections. And it's the birthplace for your emotions. And oftentimes we think like, I have a bad heart because I have wrong affections. No, you have wrong affections because your heart is in a bad state. And that is why the Bible says, above all else, we need to be guarding our hearts and keeping our hearts and protecting our hearts. And this is why we are to watch over it with diligence, the Bible says. Because all of these things, our thoughts and our ideas and our confidence and our courage and our bravery and our conscience and our conviction and our drive and our desires and our affections and our emotions, all of these things spring from this birthplace called the heart. This is why Christianity is not moralism. Christianity is that which causes a moral life. The heart that produces those things, right? The outcomes in life. And God gives us a new heart, and we ought to keep it. Now, we're going to talk more about this a little later on how to do it. But number two, the question we have to ask is, how do I know the state of my conscience? Because now we've already discovered the heart is... The conscience, yeah? the Bible refers to in 1 John 3, 20, to the conscience as being part of the heart. So how do I know that my conscience is in a good or bad state? How many of you are interested in knowing? Yeah, good. All right, let's, let's go after it. First, and these are the three things the Bible says more about conscience, but these are the three areas I would like to touch on today. The Bible talks about a weak conscience, a guilty or a clear conscience. And then the Bible talks about a seared conscience. So first, I have a weak conscience when, I have a weak conscience when, I feel guilty for things I'm not supposed to be guilty over. And I don't know when to feel guilty for stuff. Most people, they feel guilty over things they do or don't do based on what they think their parents or their friends are going to think. People don't feel guilty for breaking the law. They just regret getting pulled over, right? No guilt, no guilt for breaking the law, when in fact we ought to experience a sense of guilt for doing the wrong thing, right? It's an amazing thing. I just think I should insert it here. But there's a teaching going around the church that guilt is over. Well, there's a sense that that is true. Jesus paid for all of our sins and it is, it is now taken care of, right? 
it has been taken care of. Is the sound okay out there? There's a sense that it's been taken care of, but at the same time, <clears throat> we don't want to be these Christians with zero conscience, because the Bible warns against that too. In other words, you have to have a sense of right and wrong, and your conscience has to accuse you or excuse you based on what you are doing in, re in re relation to the Word of God. I've said this many times, but your conscience will accuse you or excuse you based on the highest truth you've been exposed to. So when you read the Word and you realize that you're not living according to the Word, at that point your conscience ought to arrest you. And then you'll pick up some guy's book and he'll say, well, that's from the devil. He's accusing you. Well, not when the Word of God is convicting you is not Satan accusing you, all right? And so, I know that I have a weak conscience when I don't even know what to feel guilty over. And I start feeling guilty over all the wrong stuff. And I don't feel guilty at all over the right stuff. Like, for instance, I always give this example because I want to cement it in your minds. But there are two people. The one person drops his Bible and he goes, Oh, I'm going to have seven years of bad luck. The other, and that same person who, whose heart smites them when they drop their Bible or the communion wafer, they think they're going to hell because they dropped Jesus. When in fact, they feel nothing for never opening the Bible they just dropped. They have no conviction, no guilt over the fact that they don't ever read their Bible, they don't ever study their Bible, they don't touch it, they don't have to, and they don't feel guilty about it at all. When in fact the Bible tells us that we ought to show ourselves approved as, as diligent students of the Word of God, right? So we are told to study the Bible, and they don't feel guilty for not studying it, but they'll feel guilty for dropping it. Can you see how their conscience is all messed up, right? That's what the Bible calls a weak conscience. A weak conscience. I'll give you the verse right here in 1 Corinthians 8, 7, and 10. Paul was talking to people about when they ought to eat stuff and when they ought not to eat stuff. Even if there is something you're free to eat, and you're in the presence of a brother with a weak conscience that would think that you are sinning by eating it, well, then don't eat it, because you don't want to hurt their weak conscience. It says this in verse 7 through 10, it says, But not everyone possesses this knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. So he's saying, there is no god they sacrificed this animal to. They think they did, but there is no such god. Go ahead and eat it. But the person that still thinks there is such a false god, he thinks that you're sinning because you're eating this food that was sacrificed to this non-existent god. So they think you just sinned. Now you're encouraging him to sin in other areas. Well, I guess nothing matters then. So let me read it to you again. It says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it defiles them. 
but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it. And we're no better off if we do. It doesn't matter. Verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. See that? Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak in conscience. You make sure that you don't hurt the person with a weak conscience because they haven't yet grown up spiritually. And so exercising all of your freedoms in front of them and so causing them to be confused. The Bible says, and then it continues, verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So you're emboldening somebody to do whatever they want to do when they see you doing stuff you have the right to do. The difference is they didn't know you had the right to do it. Uh, is that clear to everybody? Yeah? yeah? Okay. <laughs> if there's a person in your life, sister, <laughs> That, that you know is confused about right and wrong, and they feel guilty about stuff they ought not to feel guilty over, and they don't feel guilty over the things they ought to feel guilty over, watch how you live before them. Don't confuse them by exercising your rights. Then we have the seared conscience. I have a seared conscience when. I have a seared conscience when. I do not feel guilty for my sin. I do not feel guilty for my sin. So first we found that I have a weak conscience when I don't know what to feel guilty for. And I feel guilty for all the wrong stuff. And there are a lot of things you feel guilty over you ought to not have a feeling over. That was my New Year's resolution this year. I'm going to stop feeling bad for stuff I'm not supposed to be feel, feeling bad over. I'm not going to feel burdened by stuff I'm not supposed to feel burdened over. I'm not going to feel guilty over the things I ought not to feel guilty over. Right? But at the same time, on the other side of that coin, I'm going to ask God to make my conscience come alive so that I'll be convicted over the things I really ought to be convicted over. And secondly, I have a seared conscience when I do not feel guilty for my sin. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, it says, But the Spirit explicitly says, that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. You see, did you know that demons have doctrines that they preach in churches, right? Those aren't the doctrines being taught at the Brotherhood of the Ram down, <laughs> downtown. <laughs> some cult. No, inside of the church of God... There are doctrines taught by demons. You go, no, God, the demon, demons don't preach the word of God. What do you think happened in the garden? Who was preaching to Eve? The very things God said. The snake. Mm -hmm. Right? So there are doctrines of demons that are deceiving people by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their conscience, in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. As with a branding iron. That's why you'll find people who oftentimes... Uh, teach 
doctrines of demons are, are the most confident. Oftentimes, they are the most confident. Look at the verse. It says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, talking about these people who teach these doctrines, they are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, as with a branding iron. Uh, you know, just to make this, to put this into my context, about four years ago, God really did something in my heart and uh, continued to do something in Tina's. And it's almost like I got born again again, and I, or maybe born again for the first time. But all I know is that like Lydia, my heart was open in a way it was never open before. And I started seeing the things in scriptures about God that I never knew before. And I started seeing the gospel the way I've never known it before. And I saw, um, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Lest any man should boast. Lest any man should boast. Suddenly I just realized that there wasn't anything about my Christianity that I contributed to, except for the sin that made it necessary. I didn't, produce, I didn't bring anything, and it became such a revelation to me, and it so humbles you, and it so makes you grateful before God, just to understand this big, big, big God theology, which makes you so very, very small. And that happened, and suddenly, this became true for me that I actually had a seared conscience, being able to confidently teach things that, that from a different light that wasn't accurate. Confidently. And that comes, you know, that's, unless God intervenes, that never changes. Because if you have an eisegesis theology, and um, there's another word called the narcissus theology. The narcissist is the one that, that imposes or inserts himself into the scriptures and imposes his view onto scriptures. Like if I, if I need to, you know, win in a football game, I'll just pull a verse, I can do all things through Christ. If I need to, uh, you know, if I'm in a hard spot in my life and I need hope for tomorrow, I'll just pull out Jeremiah 29, 11 and I get hope. So that's a, I said Jesus, I just impose what I need upon a verse. doesn't care what the verse is really saying or what the author meant by what he said. It's just what I need for it to say right now. And I impose my goals onto scriptures. That's eisegesis. But narcissus is when you go beyond that and you insert yourself into the Bible. Now I am David. Now, now I am the one killing all the Goliaths in life. And now I'm Moses. I'm leading all these people. And, and, and now I am Gideon, you know, a mighty man of valor. And and, and I'm Samson, and I'm everybody that's great in the Bible. And so when you get to that point, the more you teach it, the more narcissistic you become. The more you read the Bible, the worse you become. And so when that, whatever God did right there four years ago for me, it's this thing became big. And I realized that I have a seared conscience if I don't feel guilty for my sin, and if I'm confident in just using Scripture's any way I want. Your conscience is seared if you use scriptures for your own benefit instead of for the glory of God. Read the verse again. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the, la in the 
latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines, paying attention to doctrines of demons. Paying attention to doctrines of demons. People pay attention to that. In fact, you should be ignoring it altogether. There are some people you have, you, ha you have subscribed to their YouTube channel. You need to unsubscribe. You need to stop paying attention to those who teach eisegesis and narcissus and don't even care how they handle the scriptures and the word of God as long as they can be blessed by it instead of God be glorified through it. Make sense? There's some people we need to just totally unsubscribe from, right? <clears throat> and the worst is when you realize it was you. <laughs> That's no good. So when you handle the Word of God any which way you want in order to get what you need, your, your conscience is seared. And then, having a clear conscience. I have a clear conscience when I have confidence toward God. When I have confidence toward God. When I have confidence toward God. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. The full assurance that faith in God brings, not faith in self. Faith in God. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience. To cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Hebrews 10.35, just a few verses later, it says, Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive that which has been promised. When you have done the will of God, when you've given yourself to the will of God. So I have a weak conscience when I don't even know what to feel guilty over. I have a seared conscience when I use the word of God any which way I want. Especially when I realize that I'm doing something wrong and I just really couldn't care much about it. I have a seared conscience. I have a clear conscience before God when I have confidence before Him because I know what He's done for me. I no longer look at what I've done for myself. So what are the symptoms of a hardened heart? We're going to just look at this example of Pharaoh. And I think that this is so key. This is so key because every one of us live with this every day. And we have the problem here with Pharaoh. The problem with Pharaoh is judicial hardening. Because throughout the Bible, the scriptures refer to how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God was the one who hardened his heart. Well, how is he to be blamed? Well, he hardened his heart first. And God says, okay, if you're going to do that, then I'll use you. And I'm going to keep on hardening your heart more and more and more throughout the ten plagues. The, can we all say judicial hardening? Judicial hardening is a theological term for God hardening people's hearts. This is the wrath of God on humanity. Hardening them against himself. Because they want to be hardened. You go like, what's going on with society? It's God. Well, I wouldn't do it if I was God. Okay, God, Junior. <laughs> if I was God, I'd soften their hearts. Well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart very clearly. It stated that. But what are the symptoms of a hardened heart? And we can look at Pharaoh to, 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 to figure this out. Number one, <clears throat> a hardened heart does not obey God. In Exodus 7.13... 
The Bible says, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. All right, so God sends Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh hears them, and he hardens his heart, because they said, God said, let my people go. And he said, no. Why did his mouth say no? Because his heart was hardened toward God. And in the same way, when somebody hears a message, and they hear a very, very specific directive from the very Word of God, and they go, no. What's that? It's the response a hardened heart always gives to God's directives. It's the same thing in family life, when a child just says no. Why is a child just saying no to the parent? Because the child's heart's hardened. It's a heart issue. The Bible says the rod drives foolishness from the heart of a child. Yeah. And so here we see, number one, that a hardened heart does not obey God. Or the reason somebody does not obey God is because they have a hardened heart. Exodus 7.22 says, But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. He couldn't obey. Why? Because his heart was hard. This is the first and the most obvious characteristic of a hardened heart. The hardened heart does not adhere to God's directives. Just as Pharaoh did not obey God in letting the people go from Egypt, the hardened heart refuses to follow God's word. Number two, a hardened heart does not recognize the finger of God. The hardened heart does not recognize God's working in the situation you're going through. Many go through the fire, but they can see God in it. Many go through the storm, but they can recognize God's doings in what they are going through. Can you see God in your situation? <clears throat> many say, and I just want to help you with this because many people get stuck here. They go, well, Jacques, you know, I don't know what good's coming from this. Well, you're probably looking to a temporal outcome. God's always looking to an eternal outcome. Somebody goes, this is horrible. This outcome is not, couldn't be God because God is good and this is not good. Well, because we are short-sighted. If you read through with, wow, women of the word, many men have joined their wives in doing that. You'll see the things we think is so extremely important. It's not important to God. Some people didn't have long lives because God decided that's it. <laughs> you know, it's better for you to die now temporally than to not live eternally. <laughs> God is always interested in your eternal outcome, no matter how painful your immediate temporal life might be. Because if the benefit is going to be on the other end, trust me, a good father will make it hurt now so that it won't hurt then. And so here we see a, a hardened heart does not recognize the hand of God in the situation. The Bible says, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The one whose heart is not pure, he shakes his fist at God when things don't go right in the temporal. Let me say that again. The one whose heart is not pure, he shakes his fist at God because he didn't get the parking spot he needed right then. Right? <laughs> things didn't work out for him right now. But blessed are the pure in heart because even in not getting that parking spot, they go like, I see God's hand must be at work somehow, somewhere. You know, when Job was going through all of what he was going through, he had no knowledge of what happened in heaven. Think about it. He had, when Job was experiencing the loss of everything, he had no knowledge of what was discussed in heaven. He had no knowledge of the, I'm looking for a word, the transactions or whatever you want to call it was going on in heaven, right? Yeah, you, you, you have no idea what's going on right now. Better say, as Job did, though you slay me, I know you're good. Though, though you take all from me, I will praise you. I don't know what's going on. But all I know is, you have my eternity in mind, and therefore I'm thankful that I didn't get what I wanted. Oh God, am I thankful I didn't get what I desired and chased after. Have you looked up some of those people you were connected with on Facebook? Have you checked them out lately, those you knew back in your teenage years? <laughs> College years, I'm like, thank you God. Man, did I try hard to make that work? And it just didn't work. <laughs> Man, did I cry over that. <laughs> now, aren't you happy? Haven't you seen some of those people <laughs> you used to date? Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> Back in high school, what were we thinking? Yeah, we weren't. And while you're crying, the pure in heart would have seen the hand of God. Blessed appear in the heart, for they see God, no matter how dark it is. In Exodus 8, verse 19, the Bible says, the magician said to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, you, you all know the story, right? So Pharaoh had these magicians. And all these plagues were falling on them. Because Moses was speaking it. <coughs> Moses was prophesying, let me say it that way. And these magicians of Pharaoh said this, the magician said to Pharaoh, verse, eight, uh, verse 19 of chapter 8, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen. Just as the Lord, Lord said he would. You see, a person with a hardened heart does not recognize the spiritual realities around him. A hardened heart cannot see the way God is working in their situation. Even though close family, relatives, friends, ministers tell them, they can't recognize it. They're blind to it. They can't hear it. They're deaf to it. They do not understand it. The understanding is darkened toward it. Why? Because their hearts are hard. They cannot, they're not teachable. They cannot take advice. They cannot hear you out. They, they have a conversation with you this way. Now, I've had many conversations with people this way. They go, Pastor, the answer, the answer is no. Now, what's your question? 
Pastor, the answer is not a chance. Now, what's your counsel? Go ahead. <laughs> what's that? It's a hardened heart. A hardened heart. They cannot see the working of God, no matter who speaks to them. Number three. We see a hardened heart wants to receive from God, but doesn't want to hear from God. Exodus 8.28 says, Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. In other words, I'm not going to let, you, I'm not going to let God have His way in you going. I'm not going to let you go. Pharaoh, let my people go. No, you can worship a little bit, but don't go far. You're not going anywhere. Then he says this, listen to this. Now, pray for me. <laughs> Look at what he says. Now, pray for me. I mean, Pharaoh literally wanted them to go and worship and pray for him without him letting them go. So, a hardened heart wants to receive from God, pray for me. But doesn't want to hear from God. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do. Now, when you have a moment, say a little prayer for me, okay? <laughs> this is a symptom of a hardened heart. Quote, in essence, they always say this. I don't want your commands. I just want your blessings. That's all. <laughs> Actually, in a nutshell, that's evangelicalism in a nutshell. That is absolutely the church in a nutshell. What does God require of you, O oh man? No, you won't hear that preached. Never. God requires nothing of me. Yeah, I know. He doesn't require anything from the unbeliever except to have faith, which he knows the unbeliever can't have unless he gives it to him. But to the believer, he says, what does God require of you? Well, to deny yourself. How about that? Let's start there. Tall order, isn't it? Anyone wants to follow me? Let him deny himself. Pick up his cross. His cross, not mine. I've picked up mine, Jesus says. You pick up your cross. Cross is what? It's not your hard time you're going through. It's not the fact that your boss is nasty to you. That's not your cross. It's not the fact that you're going through hard times, financial hardships and difficulties. That's not your cross. What is a cross that you have to pick up? The cross you and I have to pick up. Our cross, cross is an instrument of death. An instrument of death. You pick up your cross. Whatever it costs you to deny self, Whatever it costs you to walk away from self and say, I am yours. Pick up your cross like Jesus did, gave himself. Can you give yourself to God and follow him? If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, his instrument of death, and follow me. So we see number three, a hardened heart wants to receive from God, but doesn't want to hear from God. Number four, a hardened heart blames the messenger instead of recognizing its own condition. <laughs> this is so, this is so, uh, so very, like, 
prevalent or part of our culture, blames the messenger instead of recognizing its own condition. Exodus 10.28, Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me ever again. The day you see my face, you will die. You see, Pharaoh gets angry, not with his own sin, not with his own stubbornness. Can you see how stubborn Pharaoh was? How about stubbornness being a symptom of a hardened heart? Stubbornness, stubbornness. I will not. I will not. Now, stubbornness is not the fact that you did what you have to do. Stubbornness is even deeper than that. Okay, I did it. Now, what, now, okay, I did it. Okay, get off my back. Okay, that's stubborn. That's like the, uh, um, you know, the story about the dad in church. He, they're all standing to sing a hymn, and the, and, the, and, the, and the son is just like sitting there with his arms folded. And the dad leans over and says, son, stand up. He looks, he says, no. He says, son, stand up. The son looks at his dad, he says, not gonna. The son, the dad grabs him by the scruff of his neck and he pulls him up. And the, and the son standing, he says, he leans over to his dad, he says, on the outside, I'm standing. On the inside, I'm seated. <laughs> That's stubborn. That's stubborn. To all of our kids, we have to learn Kids, we have to learn to want to do and to want to please our parents, right? And here Pharaoh, he says, he gets angry, but he gets angry at Moses, the mouthpiece of God. He was really angry at God instead of seeing his own condition is of his own doing. Now, God did harden his heart because he hardened his heart. Number five, what does it mean to keep or guard our heart? What does it mean to keep or guard our heart? How many of you would like to know that? I mean, if you realize just how important the heart is, your heart is, how do you keep it? How do you guard it? How do you protect it? Now, A.W. Pink says this, quote, We are to keep the imagination from vanity. He's talking about how to guard your heart. Keep the imagination from vanity. You know, have you ever... Have you ever Caught yourself longing for things of the world? Now, we have one honest person here. and <laughs> Man, I wish I could. I wish I, man, I really, man, yeah, I wish I could. Well, A.W. Pink says, we are to keep our imagination from vanity. Man, I wish I wonder I could become. We have to keep our imagination from vanity. Man, one day they're going to see me for who I really am. Well, we've got to keep our imagination from vanity. I hear this more and more. You deserve to be loved. You deserve. No, you know what? You, we, you and I deserve hell, don't we? Yeah. Uh, and when God loves us, every bit of his love, we didn't deserve. Therefore, we can be thankful for all of it. Who's more thankful? The person that, that knows he doesn't deserve to be loved and is loved, or the person who thinks he deserves to be loved and is loved. Who's more thankful? Right? So he says, we are to keep the imagination from vanity, the understanding from error. Keep the understanding from error. Seriously, we should go home, all of us, myself included, and, and unsubscribe. I just actually, to be honest, don't know how to unsubscribe. 
I'm like, why am I still seeing this guy? <laughs> I got to figure these things out. Hans coming to my house afterwards. Maybe he can help me. God bless you. <laughs> we, we really need to learn to unsubscribe. All right? The understanding, we have to, uh, we are to keep the imagination from vanity. We are to keep the understanding from error. Keep your understanding from error. We have to keep the will from perverseness. We have to keep the conscience clear from guilt. Well, Jacques, I can't, I'm not perfect, you know. I know, that's why we have to repent. So we can remove the guilt from our conscience. Talking about how to protect the heart. The affections from inordinate things. We have to keep the mind from being employed on worthless and vile subjects. Worthless and vile subjects. Uh, what are these? Well, how about, how about you know, Facebook gossip? How about that? Gossip. Do you realize that there are people in your life, I bet you, because there are people in your life that if you had to be honest with yourself, there's not a conversation you have with them that's not gossip or slander. The only fuel that makes that fire burn between you and that person is everything you guys agree upon about other people. I mean, literally, I realized this one person I'm talking to, I'm like, there's no conversation unless we're bashing preachers or politicians because I'm trying to talk about the word and it falls, it's like it just falls on deaf ears. It's just, it goes nowhere. Ah, let's try and have this conversation about exegetical preaching, you know, like, or exegetical biblical teaching. Like, uh, uh, man, you know, you know what Pelosi said the other day? Man, you know what Pelosi, like, literally can't have a conversation unless it's that. So, I have agreed with self and with wife that I'm going to be okay with awkward moments. The moment gossip starts, I'm going to just go silent. I'm going to see how far this goes. Keep going. Keep talking. <laughs> Let's create something awkward. I kind of like awkward. <laughs> Don't you find it funny? <laughs> it's kind of fun to see people pedaling back and trying to go somewhere and God doesn't go anywhere. So it says we are to keep our imagination from vanity. Keep our understanding from error. Keep the will from perverseness. Keep the conscience clear from guilt. Keep the affections from, inor from inordinate objects and stuff. And the mind from being employed on worthless and vile subjects. Worthless and vile subjects. The whole from being possessed by Satan. This is the work which God has called us to. In other words, cleanse your imagination from vanity. You know what that is. Stop dreaming about how great and wonderful you're going to become and already are. Protect your understanding from error. Unsubscribe. Keep your conscience clean before God. In other words, repent a lot. All day long. Repentance is not a one-time issue. When God gave you a brand new heart, He gave you a brand new heart that believes and repents. 
a repenting heart that believes. In other words, I, we now live repentance. You know, you know that your repentance was, is never perfect? You don't have anything perfect about you. I don't have anything perfect about me. And when we repent, have you realized that sometimes you get back into the same things you repented for a long time ago? Because we ought not to repent one time. We ought to live a life of repentance, right? And so, keep your conscience clear before God. Finally, starve your worldly affections and your worldly relationships that feed your inordinate, inordinate affections. Starve your worldly affections. Starve your worldly affections. You can't do it if you're on TV six hours a day. You can't do it if you're on social media all day long. Because I realize social media, at least in my, in my world, on my feed, um, you know, you, you tend to want to go there because, you know, you, especially you just keep on scrolling until you find some red meat. Oh, really? They did that? Wow. You know, that's really gossip if you think about it. Keeping and guarding your heart has such a great promise that comes with it. Such a great promise that comes with it. Why, why do I feel so strong about that? You know the Bible says that the thorny soil, the thorny ground, speaking of the heart, chokes the word of God, chokes it until it cannot breathe. It has no more life in you. It chokes the word of God. Why? Why? Because the worries of this world, the worries of this world, the cares of this life, we're so connected to all the cares of this life, we don't realize that the word is being choked in us. So we have to guard our heart from the cares of this life unsubscribe, start ignoring, and start creating awkward, awkward moments. That'll be wonderful. Proverbs 4.23. It's worth it. Why? Because look at that great promise. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. Have you ever wondered why a child can have so much excitement? Because they haven't yet connected to the world. That's why. You wonder why our older person is so lifeless? Because they've connected to the world. The cares of this life has flooded them. And so God says, stop. Remember your, remember your younger self? How excited you were about everything. And you wonder, like, why am I excited again? I can't remember. <laughs> now that you're older I mean it really doesn't matter how much good news somebody gives you you go like oh okay thanks you, you see people filled with cares and on their birthday they get gifts and like oh they, thank you thank you everybody you know nothing excites them anymore why cares this life cares this life father today we come to you in Jesus name and we thank you Lord for your word and Lord, may we go through these checklists in life. And may we see God, contentment is what you've called us to. That we will be content with that which we have. That we won't say, oh, the good old days. For you said, God, in your word, that is not wise. 
that we will not fear things to come, but that we will be rid from the cares of this life and the cares of this world. This is a great day, because this is the day you have made. This is a wonderful day, because you preordained and orchestrated us to live in this day, in this age, in this place with these people. And Lord, we see this as a blessing, because blessed are the pure in heart, for they see God even in this. We all have our challenges. We all have our disappointments. We are all disillusioned over certain things. But this one thing we know, that we trust in you. Therefore, we can be glad. We can be excited. We're looking forward, God, to what you have for us. Because we know you are on the throne and will always be on the throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word today?